Real talk. Real people. Real stories. The He's Just Podcast. Yeah! Welcome, everyone, to another He's Just Podcast. I'm the owner and founder of the He's Just a Social Worker Movement, Jules Dujay. Excited about another amazing show that we have for you. But before I get started, I want to remind everyone that this platform was built because oftentimes we were overlooked, we were labeled, and we were put in boxes. But no more. Our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels the need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. I want today to take a big welcome. But before I welcome our guests, I want to remind everyone that the women that are in power are many. Women are taking over. I'm so proud of today's guest. I want to just start out by saying that Apostle Marlene Sterling is with us today. She was born in Montego Bay, Jamaica. The call of God has been always in her life. Unbeknownst to her, her first preaching assignment was to aid a blind man in the community at the tender age of just 10. At the age of 13, she received the Lord as a personal savior and took the step of receiving her water baptism. Following her migration to the United States, she received a formal evangelism training at Manhattan Bible Institution. Apostle Sterling has worked in various ministries to build the kingdom of God and has evangelized and done missions all over the world. She is passionate and advocates for the souls and the less fortunate. Upon this rock, Anointed Outreach Ministries is a based on prayer community outreach that feeds the homeless. She's also an amazing mother, three beautiful children, and she is also a renowned author. Her new book, Scars, which stands for Scar, which scared, cried, abused, ran in shame, is a book to encourage the broken, the bruised men and women to let them know that they can be victorious. She's also the senior coordinator from 71st Precinct Community Board, Food and Entertainment Committee, and ambassador to law enforcement for White House Prayer for Our Nation. Apostle Sterling is also a chaplain in the healing hearts of Champlicity. Her ultimate desire is to reach the lost and bring everyone she encounters closer to God. We are honored. Apostle Sterling, welcome. Thank you. I want to first start by saying that you are a queen in so many ways, but tell us a little bit about how you began to be drawn into this work. All right. Um, after all I've been through, um, being abused, um, my struggles, the pain that I suffered, and happening to be a pastor, a leader, when I started pastoring, I would have women that would approach me, ladies, with their brokenness. For some reason, they would just approach me not knowing me, but something would have drawn them to me to open up. And they would share their stories, um, what they're going through, the abuse they have been suffering, um, their loneliness, their emotional pain. And so having to talk with them a lot of the time, I just um, saw the need to be an advocate for them. And so to be that voice for the silence, um, to be that helping hand to help someone out of their situation. And so that has really inspired me that, you know what, I can now use my situation to empower, to help other male or females that are going through that there is hope at the end of the tunnel for them. We're very excited about this book. Can you tell us what inspired you to write this book? Um, knowing my limitation um, in terms of being, can't be everywhere all the time, this book serves as a as a, a feet, an extra feet and hand to go beyond, to go 
to different nation, different country. So I can be at one place, but yet in many places. So the reason why I wrote this book is so it can be reached to many hands who need a book in their hand. They can have it at all times to see my story, to read it, and that it can be of a good tool to them. You know, there's a beautiful quote in many inside this book, but can you tell us this quote? From now on, let no one cause trouble for me. For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Wow. Okay. Let me just explain that. And I'm going to go to the scriptures. Um, the life of Jesus. Um, when he was crucified, when he rose from the grave, and he sent the message to the disciples, there was one who was Thomas who would not believe until he sees something. And he said, until I see the scars, I won't believe that he is risen. The scars is a proof of what I have been through. Um, the scars is there to prove that it's not just a story that been made up, but the scars are there to show that, listen, on my left hand, I have the face of the iron until now from 1996, where my ex-husband, he was coming to burn my face. And so I was just in time to use my hand to block it. And so I still have the face of that iron on my left hand. That's one of the scars. On my left ring finger, um, in 2002, when he threw me out of his, um, his vehicle, and I felt on my hand. And I remember when I went to Kings County Hospital and all the detectives, the social workers, and the doctors um, came around me. And I remember um, one of the surgeons said to me that my finger is so badly damaged, and so they'll have to amputate it. But thank God, thank God they were able to save my finger. And so this ring finger, it has a scar, another scar. The many scars I have all over my body, um, the punches I received in my head. And so that, that, that is the proof along with the scripture that Jesus has the scar, the crown on his head, the scar in his hands and all over his body as a proof to show to the world what he has been through. And I'm not Jesus, and I'm not trying to be in his head, but I have scars to prove what I've been through. Apostle Sarlin, thank you so much for being transparent and sharing, you know, maybe deep information that needs to be heard. And that's what, when I first met you, the first conversations that I had with you, I was moved. And I've said this to you the few times that we have spoken. Your right. energy and your power is nothing but a force to be reckoned with. Why do you think that having your story heard is important for the men and women who are struggling, maybe in ministry or maybe not in ministry? Because um, abuse can be downplayed and be pushed under the carpet, especially in the Christian arena. Um, closer home in the church. It has been hidden. It has been, there's a, a cover on it. And it has been silent for more than one reason. And so I am here to put a voice to the silent, to the ones who are ashamed because being a, an abused victim it comes with shame. Mm. Um, we are ashamed to let anyone know, family members, co-workers, um, church brothers and sisters, our leaders, to know what we are going through. So I'm here to be the voice and to let everyone know that, listen, it's okay 
to speak up. It's okay to say something. It's okay to be heard. Um, it's okay to be ashamed, but yet not to be ashamed. It's okay, you know, New York City has something that says, if you see something, say something. As victims, you're going through it. You have been abused. You have been hurt, emotionally damaged. It's okay to speak up. It's okay to find somebody, a trustworthy voice that you can now relate to and seek the help that you need. Once again, Apostle Sterling, thank you so much for for unpacking this for us a little further. You know, in your book, you talk about a sense of abandonment. There were times that you felt no one was around. And I know you shared about the sense of guilt, the sense of shame, but this sense of abandonment. What was that like? <laughs> wow. Um, being abandoned doesn't only mean like someone take you and threw you on the highway and leave you there. It's the emotional abandonment that you're going through, you're hurting. And persons that you're really lying on to be there for you would often turn a blind eye to what you're going through. You've reached out for help, and yet your ambassador has been turned to you. You try to express yourself, yet you're not being heard. You're speaking, but you're not being heard. And so even in the church, that's where I experience the greatest abandonment. Because when I go to leaders and I try to seek help, it was more be quiet. Um, you just got to seek the Lord. You, 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 let's pray about it. Because if you say something and the church know, it could affect the church. It's going to affect the leaders. It's going to affect the whole body of Christ. And so it's going to let the church look bad. So just be quiet and it will work out. Just be humble, be prayerful. And so those response just put you in a place emotionally that you are left by yourself. You, you, I am being abandoned. Mm. And it puts me at a place where it's, 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 it's a pain that it took me years even to trust leaders in the church because of the response, the abundantment that the emotional abundantment that you get when you're seeking the help, that comfort, that voice that you want to hear someone to give you a word of comfort and to be there for you when you needed someone. That's when most of the time, no one is there for you. Apostle Sterling, do you feel that that would have been the same outcome if it would have been a brother from the church who would have reported feeling that? Or do you think that that made a difference? <laughs> no. No. You see, in our culture, we were raised um, to be submissive. Um, we were raised that the man is the head. And we were raised to be humble, to be the one that is humble. In other words, whatever the man does, it's okay. Because he's in charge. He's the head. And oftentimes I see where male are treated totally different from the females in certain areas. And so while I was going through, I remember the leaders would be asking me, um, what did you do? Um, did you cook his dinner? Did you do your duties as the wife. And um, so it was like turning the blame on the victim. And yet the men would still be active in the church. Um, the, 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 the men will still do what they want to do. And you as the female would be the one who is mostly being reprimanded and need to be disciplined because you're not rebelling. You're now not submitting to your husband, you're not listening to your husband, and you need to take the humble seat. 
So the answer to that is total different treatment. Mm. You know, domestic violence is applicable to your journey, to your success, and to your own scars. How can we help our listeners who might be up against such a struggle? And let's first start with a person who is not part of a ministry who has this struggle. What do you think are ways that they can be supportive? Uh, my thing is that find, as I said earlier, find someone who you think you're able to trust. Because being isolated, keeping internalizing what you're going through and become silent, you will not be able to get the help that you need. So my answer to that is that there is help out there. Seek the necessary help that you need and speak about it. Don't sit, be quiet, let no one intimidate you. Because one of the things as a uh, domestic violence um, victim is that most of the time the abuser tries to silence you by threatening you. Mm. And so you tend to now go into your shell and just become so silent, so frustrated. So my answer to that is that find somebody. There's somebody out there, a coworker, another person in the church, a family member, someone in authority. Find someone to talk with. I want to first plug that the National Domestic Violence Hotline phone number 1-800-799-7233. Again, the National Domestic Violence Hotline, 1-800-799-7233. They speak your language, English, Spanish, and over 200 through interpretation. You know, this is a powerful movement, and we're so excited about the book launch. Tell us about the July 15th event and what this means to you, the ministry, and your journey. Um, July 15 will be a life changer for me. Um, given the platform to many others, opening the door for others to walk in, breaking the silence so others will do the same. Um, a life changing for the ministry where we are uh, um, a people that a church that you can come to and don't feel being judged. Um, don't feel guilty for what you're going through. To be that advocate um, on July 15 on a wider um, panel with others that are going to be there, other victims who are now victors, to share their experience. We have quite a few ladies who have been through some horrible stuff. And from the, the, the being a victim to be, um, many of them have wrote books, um, being very productive, where they take their situation and make it to be positive um, by helping other victims. And so July 15 is going to be very informative. We have different persons from different entities, um, from the law enforcement that will be there. We're going to have you as a social worker. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have other pastors there who are advocating for ladies also. And so we have a wide panel. And so when you come on July 15, it's a platform where you can be yourself. We're going to have question and answer. We're going to have someone from the domestic violence department who to give information of where the resources are, what can you do um, to get all the help that you need. So July 15 is not only signing a book, it's not only having a meal, but also for you to get information to help you to get out of what you are going through. Not only that, I've come to realize that you have 
person who they escape it and thank God escape it alive. Um, not many victims were fortunate as myself and others. Many didn't live to tell their story. They didn't live to write a book. And so even when they're passed on, their voice is still being heard because it's in the book. But we thank God, I thank God personally, I survived to tell. And so on July 15th, there's no shame to the game. It's, it, you can be open. If you want to cry, cry. We have persons on site who is there to minister to your need, whatever it is. So um, July 15th is going to be great. It's going to be great. I'm part of that panel and blessed to be working yeah. with you on this journey. You know, when you think about domestic violence, the word sacrifice, you and your story, but the women and the men who are struggling with this, they have to make a sacrifice. In your book, you talk about making these sacrifices to teach you about yourself and other women who might be struggling. Like, how can you help other women who have to sacrifice? Because your story, as beautiful as it is, wasn't easy. You know, you had to walk away from something and you went from homeless to homeowner. And not every story, as you shared, will turn out that way. Tell us about that sacrifice. All right. I'm going to piggyback on um, society, especially in the church world. I sacrificed a lot. In other words, I put up with a lot. And one of the reasons I thought I was doing the right thing. For example, I stayed in the abuse for a long time because I had three boys and because I was raised with a single parent and what I saw my mom went through the struggle the many times when she had was to make a decision that as her children, who would go to school today and who will go tomorrow. Um, the many times I saw my mom did without so we can have. The many times she will take the gravy to eat the food so we could have the meat. The many times she will go actually without any shoes on her feet so we could wear the shoes. And so now it's my time. Mm. And because I saw what my mom did in the past as a single parent, I stayed in it because I wanted my children, I wanted my boys to have that male figure in their life. I saw it necessary for them to have that father that I now didn't have. And so I was willing to sacrifice my happiness, my peace, my contentment. I was willing to sacrifice my freedom because when you're in, in a domestic um, violent situation, your freedom is not compromised because now you're dealing with a dictator who tell you when to move, what to do, and what not to do. And so because of that, that whole um, cultural thing where, you know what, the, 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 and, and not only culture, but also society um, will tell you every boy need their father in their life. Every girl need their father. And that's the fact. It's necessary because it was origin by God's creation for two parents to raise the children. So that's a fact. But what we were not told is then when do you cut off? When do you walk away? When do you say enough is enough? And so I thought I was doing my son's justice that, you know, you're going to have your dad in the home and, you know, to correct you and you will be raised with a father and you will come out to be productive. And so I was willing, I sacrificed not only myself, but their happiness, where they happened to see their mom being abused, um, being cursed, being called names. As I said, I sacrificed my peace or time 
when after church, after work, I would stay back. I would be in the street. I would go to the mall. I would stay back in church even when everyone else wanted to leave because I wasn't happy. Going home, I was not happy. And so I've sacrificed a lot of stuff in the area so I could please the church world or I could please society because I'm married, I'm a married woman, and I have my sons and I have my husband raising them. So I did sacrifice even my children's safety, their happiness, their joy, and their contentment. Would this be any easier, you know, being married to a man of God and thinking that this will change at some point, that somehow, some way, that faith, that day, the next day will happen, that this can be overturned, a person being a minister, being a man of faith, does that make a difference? Or did you think about that? <laughs> yes. Um, to whom, there's a scripture that says, to whom much is given, much is required. Now, what do I expect from a unsaved to do the unsaved thing? Um, I expect an unsaved to curse, um, to act out of character. Yes, I do act, um, expect an unsaved to drink, to do whatever the ungodly stuff. On the flip side, I expect somebody who represents Jesus to act in a different way. I expect that person, of course, a godly man, to be godly and to do the godly things. So the answer is yes. I did expect that, hope that when I enter into the marriage, that here I was married in, I didn't marry an unsaved. I didn't marry somebody who was in the world. I didn't marry to a drunker, to a drunkard rather. I didn't marry to a drunk dealer. Um, I didn't marry to someone who smoked. I married to someone who was in the church, um, was a singer, very great singer, um, read his Bible, witness to the unsaved, and doing the godly things. And so when all of this started happening, I mean, I was lost because I didn't marry someone to put their hands on me. I know what it is to be kicked, not by an unsafe person, not someone who's struggling in the street, but somebody who lives in the church, mm -hmm. somebody who lives in the pulpit, somebody who on the outside of the home speak about God, testify about God. But at home, it's a whole different life, life, life of living. So the answer to that is yes. That sense of defeat, Apostle Sterling, you know, how difficult was it for you to pick yourself up, you know, count your losses, hmm. back up and just say, look, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. What was that like? It, it was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. I thought I was making that time. But years after, it was the best. It was very hard. Because here I was with young children. Here I would have to explain to them. Here I would have to go back to my mom's house to sleep on her floor um, while the boys sleep on the couch. Here I would now have to explain to co-workers, to the church, to families who I've hid it from for years. Because one of the things when you've um, been abused, a lot of us ladies, we are very good at hiding stuff. We are very good at putting on the makeup and fixing our face. With, with, within us, we are dying. And so for years, my families didn't know what I was going through. Because one, I didn't want them to get involved. Because I was always hoping, and that's one of the things with victims, we hope against hope. We hope that tomorrow morning this person is going to change. And so it was very hard for me now. I have to explain to the kids, mommy has to go. 
I got to get out of this. Do I have to explain to family member who have had everything from for years? I have to now explain to coworkers. So it was very, very hard. And it was one of the hardest because here, the children is going to be separated from their father. So now we have a split, there's a division. And so I will have to now juggle with them on my own because I know once I exit, that's the, no more support. So the financial play comes in, the responsibility of raising them comes in. So now everything now relies on me. And so it was very hard, but it's something that was necessary that I had was to do because I knew if I stayed in it, either one of my kids gonna die, might be just maybe one day I would end up killing him or one of the time it will be the last time he hit me because that could cost my death. So it was very hard, but it was necessary to do. And I have no regret that I did it. Well, thank God that you're here and you're able to, to help our listeners learn through your journey and through your walk. What do you want the readers to get out of this book? Um, where you stuck, you don't have to stay there. There is hope. There is a way to get out. Where you at now does not determine your destiny. And one of the things that I said in the book that I learned the hard way is that for a lot of women that I, you know, have conversation with and I can relate because for me, that was me listening, that was me. Is that for some reason, females just have the feeling that you must have a male with you to validate you, to feel complete. Um, to accomplish anything in life. You need that person. And so at, at any cost, you're willing to compromise your dignity, your peace, your joy, your happiness to let that come to pass. But I have proven it that it doesn't have to be so. Because yes, I had, I was married, but I was single. I was running but I was not moving I was working but I just couldn't accomplish nothing I was I mean at the lowest state in my life and yet I had someone with me that was a stepping on top to push me lower so the message in the book is that person who will read this book can see that when you make up your mind that you're worth more than what you're getting, when you begin to, um, to I would say, know who you are, get back your identity that you have lost because in relationships of abuse, you have lost your identity, you have lost your self-esteem. You have lost everything about you. But you have to come to the place to know your worth, know your value, and realize that you can make it on your own with other help. So empowering. Apostle Sterling, what do you think for a man or woman who is a victim of domestic violence? What do you think? holds them back from being successful because you have to ponder what my next move is. I got kids. I'm going to have to relocate. I probably have to go to a shelter. I may have to do something I'm not comfortable with. Hmm. What do you think holds us back from being successful? Um, procrastinating. Hmm. Um, loss of confidence in yourself. Um, the fear, because we know that fear is one of the greatest weapon that we could use uh, um, against ourselves. So you got to get rid of 
fear. You've got to get rid of doubt. Um, you've got to get rid of, I can't. You've got to get rid of, how am I going to make it? And just get up and take your chances. In the Bible, the story was told of four lepers. They had leprosy. And so in those days, once you have leprosy, you're not become a cat out. And so you can't be in the regular population. And so the four of them were, you know, put out of society, waiting to die. But one day, one out of the four decided and said, listen, if we stay here, we are going to die. And if we take our chance, it's a possibility that we are going to die. But either way, Debt is guaranteed. But one out of the four found the courage to make a get-up. I call it the get-up decision. So before you can physically get up, you got to mentally get up. Get rid of your fear. And so because that one made the decision that listens to me, come on, guys, we are gonna we are gonna take our chance. Because if we go over Samaria, they're going to kill us. Either way, and if we stay here, we're going to die by leprosy. And because that one out of the group make a decision to get up, the other three get up with him mm. and they survive. So get up out of your fear. Get up out of your doubt. Get up out of wondering if you're going to make it. Yes, you can make it. So I would say fear, doubt is the two biggest thing that does that so powerful get up you know visualize that when you're dealing with domestic violence there's a power and control wheel the aggressor has these tendencies sometimes it's in a good mood and you think things are okay Hmm. and they flip in an instant and then there are times you think things are not going to go well and this person is in a good mood and then they go back into that cycle how difficult is it for a person who has to be on that lookout from this person who is mad today, maybe happy tomorrow, and could be violent? You constantly live in an edge. Mm-hmm. Um, you're constantly looking over your shoulder. One of the things I remember with my, I had was still calculate what I'm going to say because now i got to make sure I'm not going to say anything to him that is going to trigger him. Mm. And so you have to be treading on a thin line because this, this, may, this may just um, you might say something nice and it triggers them. Mm. You might say something not so nice, and it triggers them. So you're constantly living in fear and living on edge. And so it puts you in a, in a, in a place of, I would say, um, you, you, your days are full of uncertainties. Coming home from work, if I'm five minutes late, what's going to happen? Mm. When he comes home, if the meal is not ready on time, you're on edge. If I give him a compliment, it could be an insult. So your life is constantly, constantly on edge, living on edge. Mm. You know, it, it, it's so amazing to hear you. I'm just so proud for you, the men and the women who take a chance to get up, to give themselves a shot. It's mm-hmm. a big risk. It's a big challenge. But God is big. Talk to us about your self-care. What do you do to take care of yourself? How do you remain? And I know spirituality is a big piece of this. Tell us what do you do to remain balanced? Um, I spend a lot of time um, in prayer. I'm a very praying person. I have a great support from my congregation. Um, some good intercessors and prayer warriors. Mm. I surround my um, self in a lot of positivity, persons that are positive, um, 
I just do a lot of conferences, which is very rewarding to help other women to get to the place where they need um, to be. I occupy myself a lot in ministry. I do a lot of outreach. As I said, I do a lot of conferences, empowering women, helping. Um, I do a lot of mission work, um, feed the homeless, um, being involved in community, um, like, you know, whatever community work along with the present as a coordinator of food and entertainment. So I occupy myself in things that are um, rewarding in terms of helping others. Uh, my happiness comes from not only thinking about me, but making sure that others are happy. Uh, making sure that women that are broken, whatever means and method to help to get them to a place to be whole. Um, those that their self-esteem has been ruined by the words they were told. I remember my ex-husband used to tell me, you're ugly, you're not going to get any male in your life, you're not going to make it. And for, and for a while, I did believe. And so I gave up on myself. I never used to do anything to my hair. I was like an old drug queen. I looked like, I mean, you know, some just homeless person. Because I believe um, his lies and it, it damaged my self-esteem. And so a lot of ladies that are going through, they're going through the same thing. They don't want to take care of themselves. They just, I mean, you know, just, just at a place where they are stuck. And so I use my time to help to minister to them, not only spiritually, the word of God, but also to help them teach them how to take care of themselves, teach them how to um, take your me time, teach them how to get up and go, do what you like to do. So I spend most of my time helping others. And that's what really, the more I help, the more I feed the poor, the more I do mission work, the more I speak to persons. My days are so compact because I spend hours on the phone counseling, giving advice, encouraging. So that's where I get my fulfillment in helping others. God bless. I have a question for you. Your spirituality is like your armor. Is your is your super cape? Tell us about where your soup, you know, your super cape, your spirituality got you. How did it get you from being dormant to being a superhero right now? How did that spirituality get you there? Um, there's a scripture in Philippians 4, verse 13, that says, I can do all things, not some. Meaning I can do whatever I want to do through God who strengthens me. My strength comes from him. Another scripture says that the joy of the Lord is my strength. And so I constantly in the word of God, reading his promises, um, because they're sure, they're guaranteed. There's no lie in his word. And so I spend a lot of time in the word. As I said, I spend a lot of time um, in prayer. I believe in, I'm a strong believer um, in the word of God. And I believe I can do anything. I can be what I want to be. I can go where I want to go. Because the word of God said, I can do all things. So whatever the all things are, I can do it. I can move a mountain. I believe I can hold a lion by the head as David did and rip it apart. Mm -hmm. I believe I can make it to the White House. I believe I can fly, <laughs> you know, literally fly. But I believe in the word of God. I can do all things. So whatever I see and I want to do, I can do it. Your book discusses, you know, helping us get closer to God. Why is this important? And what are things that we need to do more of to accomplish that? Well, the word of God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God on all his righteousness. And everything else will be added on to us. And so, as I said earlier, I believe in the word of God, line up and line. I mean, 
the T's and the I's, I believe every single word. And so we can't live without him. We cannot live without God. And so in order to accomplish as the word of the Lord said, seek he first, seek the things of God, um, do the things that he, he commanded us to do, live by his word, live in his word, and activate his word and let his word become our lifestyle. You talked about your congregation, Strong and Mighty. Tell us a little bit about your new ministry. Okay, so I have a ministry here in Brooklyn upon this work anointed all three ministries. Last year, November, we opened another branch um, in Jamaica, St. Catherine. And so um, we started that ministry because we saw the need there. And as I said, I did a, I do a lot of mission to Jamaica, helping other churches, feeding um, the poor. Um, we went down in March of this year mm. to feed the community. We were able to send off 16 barrels, medical supplies, food and clothing. We went there, we cooked and we feed um, the community. And we are hoping very soon to open another church in another um, parish to do mission work. You know, let's talk about domestic violence and what do you want to see change in our houses of worship? What do you want to see happen with this trauma with domestic violence? Oh, very good question. What I would like to see in the house of faith is that there are platforms, open conversation about it. Instead of trying to hide it, to expose it. Um, bring an enlightenment to it that it's the reality. It's happening not only in the world. Because a lot of time, I think um, within the church world, we don't play it a lot. Because we want to protect the image of the church. And so it has been downplayed. It has been put underneath the rug. When you have people who are hurting, not only adults, because whatever, if you're in a household and you've been abused, you're not the only one. The children and others there with you are going through also. So my writing this book and coming out is that leaders will face the reality that this is not something to cover up. These are persons' lives that are on the line. These are persons who can leave, I mean, sorry, who can lose their lives while we're trying to turn a blind eye to it, while we're trying to downplay it, while we're trying to, as if it, it's not existing. And, and I believe in prayer, as I said, I'm a strong person who know me, they know me as a praying person. But there are some things that prayer can't change. There are some things that we got to physically do what we have to do. Because I remember when I was going through and I would go to leaders speaking up and they would tell me, oh, just pray about it. The Lord will change it. No, it's not going to change like that. So um, my, my prayer, my intent is not to let it look bad on the church. But there's too much cry. There's too much cry. There's too much hurting people, hurting women in the house of God who have been silent just to protect the church. So this book and what I'm doing is that leaders will now be considerate to the need of the people you're leading. Not only that they need the spiritual part of the guidance, but they're hurting, being abused, and, and, and abuse is not only hitting a person, as you know, your line of beauty, is the verbal, is the emotion, is the mental, that abuse that other persons are going through. And also what I would like to see is that faith-based being educated about domestic violence. And maybe it's just because of the, 
the educational background that they're not educated about domestic violence or don't have enough information about it or just being in denial. So my, my desire is that this book will bring awareness and enlightenment to the real issues of domestic violence. Apostle Sterling, you know, after creating this book, have you had any backlash from people <laughs> from the houses of worship? Yes. Yes. How does that yes. make you feel? Can I honestly say to you, mm -hmm. um, since I've done this book, I have experienced a lot of sabotage. Even, you know, happening to sales of the book. I have had leaders that I've reached out to and they're all excited about it. But when they begin to ask the question and the details and the purpose of the book, it's a shh, no phone calls returned. They don't want to hear about it. And this is what I'm saying because it's happening in their congregation they tolerate it, they put up with it for whatever reason, because they want the church to look good. So oh, sure, I have experienced some charge. But honestly, I really doesn't care as long whatever and I purpose by all means necessary. If I have to go on the street corner to let it be known, I'm not gonna stop. But this is needed because for too long, I have counseled first ladies presently who, when you heard their story, what they are going through, and on a Sunday morning, they have to show up at church being happy. By the time it's over, they are going home broken. They are going home with their they and their husband are sleeping in separate rooms, in separate beds. They don't do nothing. It's just the image. They're there just to protect the image of the ministry. So, yes, I do encounter a lot of summer charge. Well, just so you know, we plan to have the link to your book on our website. Thank and you. We plan to make any type of movements to help change happen because our platform was built for that because no one can tell us, no one can stop us. And we can see people like yourself who are powerful, strong, dedicated, and link to spirituality in a positive way. And that should yeah. not be hampered that in no way. What are what are some of the trends that you see around mental health? And after COVID, I feel that the nation, the world mm. is open now to to more conversations of mental health. What are you seeing in your ministry? Um, I've seen the great need, not only for uh, domestic violence, but also platforms um, to discuss mental health, especially since COVID, where um, it affects persons in so many different ways, an entity of life. And before and even to present, I don't think there's a platform in faith-based or attention has been paid to it. And one of the reasons for that is that as leaders, we tend to just focus on the spiritual part of persons. Not really is that they, the mental status need to be attentive. Because believe it or not, you have persons who come to church and um, they're mental, they are, they're on medication, they are going through stuff, um, they are depressed. They are suicidal. And so we just focus as the leaders on the spiritual part again. You must repent, give your life to the Lord and live right. And that's what we focus on. And I think the time is now, not tomorrow. It's now for the faith base to realize that there's different, there's a spiritual, there's a financial, the physical, emotional. I mean, human beings are made up of different entities, different needs. And my, my um, desire, my intent is that in whatever way, starting with our ministry is to bring awareness that 
mental health has to be addressed because it doesn't mean because you're a Christian and you go to church, you don't have mental issue. So my intent is that starting with our ministry, that we start to address and pay attention and focus on the fact that it needs to be addressed. Apostle Sterling, we want to give you the floor just to give a message of empowerment, a message to our listeners, to our audience. What do you want them to remember about you, about the struggle, about the journey? <laughs> about the struggle and about the I've struggled a lot. My journey is one that um, when I look back on my life, I don't know how I survived. Let me just piggyback. I remember the day when my husband threw me out the van. It was right in King's Highway in Schenectady in Brooklyn. Um, because what happened, it, it is so much to talk about, but just to make it short, he has a lot of affair. He had kids in the marriage. I put up with it. I accept it. And so that particularly was going to the week. I just had my son, my last son, and I was standing waiting on the bus. And I saw he pulled up and I went in the vehicle and he said to me, get out. And I said, could you just take me to the week office? And he said, no. Now, my second son was there in the van who witnessed um, what happened. And I wouldn't come out and he just came and he just dragged me out. So I was going to, I was about to hit the, um, the pavement, go down headway. So I just went down on my hand. And I remember when I, I really, I passed out. And when I came back to, so I realized the paramedics were there and police were there and they were asking me what happened. And for a moment, I just couldn't recall. But I remember when I go to Kings County Hospital and had social worker, had so many persons around me. The pain, the physical pain was severe, but the emotional pain was worse. It was worse. I remember when the detectives, when I came out of the hospital and I went back to the precinct and they wanted to press charges and I, I, I just couldn't see myself. And that's one of the things as victims, we live in denial. I just couldn't see myself sending my kid's father to prison because then I'm saying I'll have to explain to my kid and I'll have to live that with that guilt. And so I just didn't give them the information. I remember the detective was so upset when he took out the picture that they took off my hand and he said, you could have died in front of your son and stuff. I still didn't. I know what it is to come home from work and to have my ex-husband use a hammer and break every furniture in the house. I know what it is to be beaten, to be kicked with his um, Timberland boot, end up in the hospital. I know what it is to be punched in front of my mother with the blood just running down my head. I know what it is to suffer financial embarrassment. I know what it is to be on welfare so my kids could have a night meal. I know what it is to be talked about. I know what it is to be called names. I know what it is to, to open my fridge at times and nothing is there. I know what it is to having to tell my boys that I can't give you a Christmas gift. I know what it is to let them know, go to school, and as soon as school is over, just come home and we'll open a tin of sardine or tuna, and we just have it and we live happily ever after. I know what it is to struggle. I know what it is to, for a man to look at me and belittle me. <laughs> I, I, I know what it is to be cheated on. I know what it is to marry to a man who brings five kids into the marriage. I know what it is for that same man that I married to leave me and my boys being homeless and went and bought the house and put his baby mother in it. I know what it is to call him on the phone 
for milk or food for my children. And of course, the baby mother would put the phone by her baby ears and I listened to them. I... <laughs> mm. I'm sorry. Nothing to be sorry about. I what know what real struggle is. I know what it feels like. I know what it looks like. I know what it is days to cry to God and ask what did I do to deserve this try to be the best wife try to do everything make sure when he comes home his meal is ready his clothes is washed I know what it is for finances to be held from me I know struggle I know what it is that I have to smile when I'm hurting. I, I, I know hardship. I've lived it and I've experienced it. I know what it is to put a blanket on my mother's floor and sleep on it while the boys are on the couch. I know what it is to be homeless twice. I know what it is to be told you will never get a dollar from me. I know what it is to have a counselor who counseled me in my marriage and that counselor turned around and married to my ex-husband. I know what it is to be betrayed by friends. I know what it is to be betrayed by persons who I would open up myself to and they will tell me, oh, you can trust me, you can trust me. You, you can trust me. And at the time, you're vulnerable. And you just wanted to hear that. You can trust me. And I open up and I pour out. But later on, it become a curse to me. It become a talk about. I know what it is. And just to wrap it up, my journey wasn't an easy one. But I can truly say, as the word of God say, had it not been for God and my side. And despite my struggle, I thank God that I never one day have to go to the precinct. I don't ever one day have to go upstate to visit any of my sons through a 10-inch wall. I'm glad. I thank God a part of my journey is I never have to regret I ever had them. They have never let me down. My first son is a licensed mechanic. He um, married, have three beautiful kids. I know what it is when I look back on my kids. My second son, who was a valedictorian for Williamsburg High School with a full scholarship, um, he was born premature baby, didn't speak until he was three year old um graduated college music have a degree in music engineer speak a second language study japanese in japan and speak japanese as a second language my third son my baby graduated um florida university palm beach university um with his degree in finance uh, and um i was able without a man by my after I decide to pick myself up, um, find back who I am. And, and, and as the word of God said, I had was um, in Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 18.22, he that findeth a wife, findeth a good thing. And I dwell on that scripture and I begin to tell myself, I am a good thing. I am a good thing. Because God said, he that find it a wife, find it a good thing, and that man finds favor. So I had to work on my self-esteem, regain my identity, know who I am and whose I am. 
And when that, when I did that and gather my strength, I know there's more in me that God has put in me. Not only for me. I remember one day when I was going through and I cried out to God. I said, God, why? I got saved from the age of 13. I don't know what it is to go to a club. I don't know what it is to go to a bar. I've never drunk. My husband met me in church as a young girl at the age of 21. So what did I do to deserve this? And I remember the Lord said to me, I'm going to use you to help others. I'm going to take your mess and give you a message. I'm going to turn your mess into a ministry. And I've seen where God has used me and it's still using me to empower women. Anywhere the broken women are, they find me and never remain the same. And so that's a part of my um, journey. And when I get back myself and realize who I am, I'm, I'm a diamond, I'm a pearl, I'm a child of God, I am royal, I'm a daughter of the Most High King. And I begin to snap back into myself and stop believing the lies that I've been told and just get back myself. I was able to purchase my first home as a single mother, wrote my first book, opened another ministry, and I'm on my second book. So I just want to thank God. It, it has been a hard journey, very interesting, very rewarding. I know that I can look back um, and see that what I've been through was just a tool in God's hand to help me to help other women. And I pledge to myself and to God, I will dedicate the rest of my time on earth, I don't know how long, to help even one. Because one can change a community, one can change a nation, one can change the world. And if I can help a broken woman, a, a victim to get up from where she's stuck, from where she has fallen, from a place of hurt, I'm willing to do that at any cost. Apostle Sterling, we are humbled by your words, by your presence, and your grace. The He's Just movement, we know what it is to pick yourself up. We know what it is because you are good. Redeem your identity, friends. We are and will be more than just make your mess into a message. What is your journey? What is your calling? Oftentimes, we were overlooked. We were labeled and put in boxes, but no longer. Our plight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Don't miss, friends, the next He's Just a Social Worker show coming real soon to a town near you. We out. Please note that the views expressed here are my own and not a representation of my employers and clients. Thank you for listening. We're always here for you. Just message us and we'll get back to you within 24 hours. Thank you. More than just at He's Just a Social Worker.